0: The Class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit from West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the Class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the War on Terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, These are the stories of those graduates as we look through the gray.
1: On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with McKinley Wood. McKinley's love of history and military leaders drew him towards service, but it was his mentors in JROTC recognized his potential and helped set the conditions for his entrance to West Point. McKinley was given opportunities to succeed, but he earned his success. Through late nights of studying and harassing his roommates for assistance, McKinley demonstrated his drive to never quit and his unwillingness to let down those that had invested in him. McKinley took the lessons he learned in growing up in Atlanta, in JROTC, and at West Point and applied them to his role as an armor officer. McKinley deployed to Iraq with 33ID fighting the initial invasion in 2003 and returning again in 2005. McKinley would transition from active duty to serve in the Georgia National Guard and later transition from the Guard to serve in the Reserves, returning the gift of mentorship that was paid forward to him throughout his life. This is his story. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods, and hitting each other with sticks. I joined the military, and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in-shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360-703-6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban industrial Northwest giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Welcome to three of the great. We're speaking with McKinley Wood. How you doing today, McKinley? I'm doing great.
0: I'm sitting in Maine right now, far away from home.
1: So first question, why West Point?
0: West Point. So while, as I was growing up, you know, I would go to my grandma's house and she had the Encyclopedia Britannica and My One of my favorite things was to look at the Britannica encyclopedias and look at the wars of the United States. And I'll read about the generals, the famous people, Eisenhower, Lee, Grant, Sherman, all these other famous people. And so that kind of sparked my interest in military. And I didn't know much about West Point at all until I actually got there. But I knew I wanted to serve the nation. And it was something that I thought I could do. I would do it enlisted or... I didn't really know how to get to be an officer. And it just worked out for me being part of high school ROTC, being part of people who want to push me to do these things that I had no idea about. So West Point was kind of forced upon me, none less to say.
1: And it was free. What do you mean forced upon you? How did your your junior ROTC instructors (laughs) force it? Uh, so they saw. They saw a young, I will say it, you know, I'm
0: not afraid to say it, a young black kid in inner city Atlanta that had discipline. And I think they saw that and they saw that a person like me could be, make it far in the military and my senior my primary military science professor, or senior military professor, he was a lieutenant colonel. He was a Vietnam veteran through fixed wing and rotary wing aircraft in Vietnam. My second ones were, were infantry, Ranger infantry, and another one was a tanker of Vietnam. And they were like, okay, this guy has quality. We need to send him to a military school so he can become an officer. And they picked at me and pushed me and prodded me and got on my nerves. So I just bent to their will just to get him off my back, honestly. And that's how it was really forced. It was just working on me constantly.
1: So... Was it just the JROTC prep at high school that helped get you into West Point? What were your academics and your athletic skills like? Academics sucked. So I graduated from West
0: Point, and at West Point High School, Mays High School, with a 2.67 GPA. Physically, I was top. I could do more, run more, faster. I could endure greater discomfort than a lot of my classmates. Uh, militarily, I was captain of our rifle team, which took incredible discipline for a high schooler to do, you know, firing precision rifles in high school and sticking with it and then leading the team and training them. So it, so RTC, JRTC in high school was the main catalyst, the main driver for me. My other, my guidance counselor, when I told her, I said, Hey, I want to apply for West Point. She looked at me and laughed and said, do something easier. I would tell teachers the same thing. They're like, they looked at me, they saw my grades. They're like, okay, you can apply, but I hope it's a free application because you're going to lose your money.
1: So when you applied, what was the response you got back from West Point? What was that? The last part? What was the response back from West Point?
0: I really didn't know what their responses were because I applied with the help of and through my senior military instructor, Nicholas Burke, Lieutenant Colonel Nicholas Burke, he he asked me the question to, to ask me to fill stuff out. and we'll would call my parents and have them fill out paperwork. And then he would run with the ball. And then a couple of weeks go by, you know, say, hey, you have a physical test scheduled this day, or you know, I'll talk to your parents and they, you're going to have a physical with a doctor this day. And I'll say, okay, whatever. I'm in high school. I don't know what the heck's going on. So I just do it. I just do what they told me. It sounds kind of weird, huh? Just people force feeding you West Point and you don't know what you're doing. That was me. So did you get accepted? Well, I was I accepted. accepted. Yeah, yeah, I was accepted, but I started that whole journey a year, maybe a little bit more than people of my same cohort in high school. I started it late and when West Point said, look at my application and my test scores and all this other stuff, they saw that I would benefit from the prep school, but there were no more slots left for that class of, what was the class of? So. six or so 2000, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, they told me I can go to the prep school, and I was like, prep school? Okay, I guess that's good. Is it free? <laughs> so I went. I didn't even know where it was. I had no idea.
1: What was your experience at prep school like?
0: Prep school felt, for me, it felt natural. I acclimated to the discipline, the rigors of the military life very quickly. I struggled in high school and academics. I struggled at prep school and academics. So it was just, it was normal for me. Athletically, you know, it felt natural. What I really did enjoy about prep school was being around a lot of people my same age with the same goal in mind. Not there, were, there was drama, but it wasn't like high school drama, if you know what I mean. People were, you know, they were focused on one goal. They had their things, their hangups, but it didn't overcome what everyone was there to do or
1: to achieve. And I like that. What was it like? The I mean, the diversity of kids at prep school, but also the talent. I know most people when they walk in the West Point and they see the level of talent But you're there and you have these prior service, new cadets, the prior service soldiers. You have these prepsters who are core. They're recruited for core sports. They're division level one athletes. What was it like meeting these people and learning with them and preparing for West Point together? Oh, you're asking all the good questions and I'll give you some
0: candid answers How about that. So I grew up in Atlanta. I went to a high school that was 99.9% black. Going to my first, this is my first experience in going to a school, in academic environment in which my race or my ethnicity was not the majority. So it was very eye-opening to the world for me at the time. And going to school with someone, the people who were, they were smart, people who were smarter than me. There were some people with better physical capability than I had. There were people who were, who grew up in military families. And so they understood the rigors of military life and what was being asked and what the goal was. So it was very, even though I felt like it was a natural next step from high school for me, and I felt very accepted there, it was very, it showed me that I wasn't the top kid. And I'm sure a lot of people felt the same way. I wasn't the top kid anymore. I wasn't that guy that, people would look to and say he can do it or he can he is the only one that's capable of achieving this i had hundred plus 200 people there that could do the same thing when asked so it was a little bit intimidating i would say that but i felt good there
1: jrtc in high school you had some people that were really rooting for you help really pushing you did mm-hmm. you have that same kind of structure at the prep school whether it was NCOs or classmates?
0: I would say on the NCO side and the tactical, the tech officers there, yes, the NCOs were more verbal in their pushing for me to be successful. The officers, you know, they would give their mentorship, but I don't think they really wanted to show their preference to any student. Peers, yes, the People would stay up late with me and make sure I understood something, or I would stay up past the freedom in the classes with them and work on military stuff for them, or academics or, or an academic with athletic stuff for them. So there were people there. We pushed each other. We've had each other's back because we all had the same goal. We wanted to make it together.
1: Graduation from the, the Prep Academy and movement to West Point. What was that experience like? What was similar and what changed?
0: It was unreal. It was like, I don't know what it feels like because I haven't done it yet, but maybe like how people feel when they win the lottery. It's like, what do you mean I won? I was playing the game. I was, you know, vested in the possible outcome. Well, what do you mean I got an appointment to West Point? This is something that people like Eisenhower and Bradley and all these other like famous people get. You know, I'm not famous. I didn't come from an influential family. I, you know, I didn't do any of this stuff. I'm not a national hero. How did I get to go to the same place? It just felt unreal for me. When I was at West Point last weekend for Sandhurst and I went to the cemetery and I looked at all the people who are graduates there. I saw Schwarzkopf's grave and I'm like, I went to the same institution as these guys. It's still unbelievable to me that I was accepted. I made it three, four years, and I graduated.
1: What was that? The hardest part of that to convince yourself that you could do it. while When you got there, one thing I kind of I'm proud of myself for being
0: is that I honestly didn't know how to quit. I've never known how to quit in my life. I knew how to fail because I failed plenty of times, but I didn't know how to quit. And that's what I learned about West Point. If you didn't quit on yourself, people would been been time you know the fabric of time to help you out but as soon as you quit on yourself they had nothing more to do with you you were just a lost cause
1: who did you engage who did you reach out to get help to get you moving in the right direction to to fix your academics because again we talked earlier that was the real kind of weak spot for you yeah so first year
0: First, it, yeah, first year, two guys that helped me out a lot. Plevier, Benjamin Hong. He still he's still active, Colonel Hong, and uh, Andy Burdett. He's he got out. He's a veterinarian. I forget which state he's in, but those were my roommates. And you know Nathan Parrish, you know people who were you know tough academically. Mills, I forget his first name right now, but my roommates, the people I reached out to, to say, hey, man wake up. I, how do you do this? They're like, all right, man, I'll show you one last time. And then they went back to bed and 30 minutes later, I'm like, dude, show me this again. Wake up. Uh, You know, the professors, they tried to help me, but I think they knew how to teach. They knew how to regurgitate the information, but they didn't know how to teach me at least. They had to teach other people, not me. I needed someone to tell me, say, Hey, are you that stupid? Look, One plus one equals two, not three. And (laughs) my roommates were probably the biggest help I had while I was West
1: Point. When you were struggling with academics and you were getting that help, what were the biggest sources of motivation to keep you going? Was it sports? Was it clubs? Was it breaks to do other activities?
0: No, it was two things. The first one, I didn't know how to quit. I'd never, I'd never know how to quit. And you know, my wife, she hates that in me. I don't know how to quit. We get arguments because I won't leave her alone about stuff. I was like, Hey, no, you yeah, gotta keep going. So that was the first thing. I didn't know how to quit. The second thing is it hurts my heart to let someone down. And if someone invests that much time in me, even if it's 30 minutes of sleep, I don't want to let them down. I don't want to say, Hey, I know you put your time and effort in me but I failed you and you just wasted your time because time is the most precious resource I think people have on earth. And for me to say, Hey, I just wasted your time because I'm just a worthless sack of crap. That, those two things right there. It wasn't sports. I didn't give a damn about sports. It wasn't, you know, being on a Dean's list. I didn't give a damn about that. I cared about myself and quitting. I didn't know how to, and people, what they would think. About themselves and about me.
1: After you get through the mandatory courses at the front end of West Point, the first two years, what really guided your selection of what your major would be, and then ultimately what branch you wanted to get into? So, after the first two
0: years, I started to smoke West Point. I guess it finally clicked. You know, my last year, I was on the dean's list. You know, I finally found my niche. My major, you know, I started out with, I wanted to be an engineer. I knew I wanted to be an engineer. My dad was a master electrician and I would love to just tear up his tools, trying to figure stuff out. He would take me to work and I'll try to figure out what he did. So I knew I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to be, I tell people an engineer is a person that, that can figure things out. That's what we do. That's what engineers do. We figure out how to do stuff. That's the basis. And I started out with electrical engineering. I got destroyed, I couldn't do it, but another love, what was missing from electrical engineering for me was pairing people, technology and or equipment together. So I ended up being a systems engineering major, which is, you know, in the labor world as industrial engineering and. That inevitably drove me to after I snapped my leg in airborne school, trying to land my heavy butt on a soft piece of ground land from what 1200 AGL, 1500 AGL jump. I know it was going to be infantry, but knowing being able to put people and machine together and making it all work seamlessly. So I thought to myself, what branch could do that? And once I went to Fort Knox and fired the main gun of an M1A1 heavy coming tank the first time, I knew that was it. I was like, this is it. Four dudes in different parts of the tank making it all work together. You got the loader, the driver, the gunner, the commander. And if one person is not there, you're working in a degraded mode. If one person don't know what the hell they're doing, you all die. It's simple as that.
1: As you approached graduation for West Point, the skills that you picked up for academics, the skills that you picked up for personal growth. What was your leadership walk like? Did you feel prepared to lead a platoon?
0: That's a very good question. Leaving West Point, oh, that's a very good question. Man, you should have said that in a pre-question so I can think about that one. That was. <laughs> So, was I prepared to lead a platoon? I would say for me, was I prepared to put all the elements of leadership, of understanding people, and of myself, understanding myself together? That's what I needed to lead a platoon. And it wasn't until I was forced to put those elements together, you know, the leadership principles and things we learned at West Point, The learning about myself and my academic, not my academic deficiency, and how I would learn how to teach myself to be successful at something and understanding myself more. I would say no. Graduating West Point, I was not ready to lead a platoon. Graduating from OBC, I was not ready to lead a platoon. Graduating from scout school, I wasn't ready to lead a platoon. Getting to my platoon and being forced to put those elements together in a real-life practical example
1: That's what got me raised to platoon. I love that question and I don't ask it enough, but it goes to that point that officers have to be generalist and everyone understands that, but they have to be able to learn and adapt and grow at such a rapid pace. And people sometimes forget that, that most of the time when you meet that officer who is in command, it's his first rep at that leading at that level. Yeah.
0: And you have to be willing to fail and not give up. You have to be willing to fail. You can't learn without failure. And that's a lot of people don't get stuck on that. They fail one time, they think their life is
1: over. Before we move into your military career, what was graduation day like for you and your family? Well, for me, it was,
0: I'm finally getting out of prison. What am I going to do? I'm serious. When I drove away from West Point, I saw West Point in my rearview mirror and I said, I'm never coming back to this place again. Screw this place ever again. If I come back here, then they need to bury me. That's what, that's the only reason I'm coming back here. My family thought it was a big deal. They still knew. I mean, other people still knew more to me about West Point, even though I attended there, the academy. They thought it was great. They thought it was an accomplishment within my family. I wasn't the first person to go to college. You know, my great, uh, my grandmother went to college. She was born in 1911. You know, she went to college and made something of herself. So going to college wasn't a huge deal in my family. It was expected, but they still understood more than me about what West Point meant. And it took me a while to really understand the pedigree of the institution I went to and making it out of. So they thought it was a big deal. What impact did 9-11 have on you? I was sitting in the New Conductor fire at Fort Knox in OBC when 9-11 happened. And we thought it was a, we thought it was a TV show. And the impact of 9-11, honestly, it didn't really have an impact on me. I knew no one in New York. You know, I didn't know, I didn't have a family there. It was on TV. You know, I really didn't watch TV much when I was a 20 year old. Twenty-some year old, but it wasn't. It really wasn't until I got to my first platoon, and knowing that, hey, I'm going to go overseas and deal with the people that dealt us this blow. I am the one that's going to deal with these people. That's the the impact didn't hit me until January 2002. That hey, I'm actually going to be the one to do something about this. And then once I realized that, I think that's when I really started learning how to be a platoon leader (laughs) because I wanted to deal with these people because, hey, I'm going overseas to do this. I want to do it right. I want to come back home and then I want to go do it again. Talk me through what that was like. Where did you go and what unit did you go to? So I was assigned to Alpha Company 269 Armor at Fort Benning, part of Third Brigade, Third ID. And... They just got back from, well, I would say two thirds of the battalion just got back from Bosnia the previous year. And they were on the cycle to be deployed again for Operation Desert Spring in Kuwait. And this desert, this deployment to Desert Spring wasn't just the coalition support of Kuwait against Iraq, keep them from invading, but this was with an on ordered mission to redeploy to Afghanistan with heavy armor support to whatever. Assets we need to support there. So that's where I went. We went to Desert Spring and we trained high-intensity conflict. We trained how to maneuver tanks in the desert, how to engage targets at one, two, three miles distance at night during the day, in the heat, in the sandstorms. We did all that stuff. And, you know, with the on-order mission of Kuwait, we trained with SF units on how to do extraction and all the other good stuff. So my first unit, first deployment, it was jumped right into the driver's seat and started doing the job the Army wanted
1: me to do and paid me to do. The focus of doing that in Kuwait, in these makeshift forward operating basins in the desert outside of Kuwait City, and that's a 100% what the focus was. You, your team, your tanks, train. When did you feel comfortable that you were ready for whatever you got asked of you? Or did you ever get there? I didn't feel. All right. So I felt
0: relaxed. I'll say I, it was two stages for me. Comfortable, relaxed and calm. I felt relaxed that I could do my job. The first time I engaged a tank at night at 3,400 meters with a heat round on the move. That's when I felt relaxed that, hey, I can actually do this job. I can identify enemy target. Get my whole tape to see it, have one person sensing the target, one person engaging the target, and then my gunner engaged the target. We hit it, destroyed it. My wingman sensed it, said it was a good hit. That's when I felt relaxed. I didn't fit, get comfortable with the job until we got on the airplane. Actually, I didn't get comfortable with the job until we got to Dublin. And we had the little layover there where you could drink like Irish up coffee, and a little bit of Guinness and stuff. I didn't feel comfortable until then that, hey, I actually did what people always tell their soldiers going to do. I'm going to bring you back home alive. So nothing for me ever happened all at once. It always happened in stages. And that's what kind of sucks about my life because I feel like it wastes a lot of time. But it helps me learn the lesson and
1: it helps me understand what lessons need to be learned me through the ramp-up to the ground invasion in March of 2003. The first thing I remember about the ramp-up to that is that our
0: battalion commander in probably November 2002, it was because we invaded on March 19th. Well, I crossed the line of departure in March 19th, whatever the news says is not right. I crossed LD in March 19th. But I would think November of 2002, he stood on one of our tanks in the motor pool and snatched the beret. We went to the black beret and, you know, the black beret had the uh, unit insignia, the the UIC, unit distinctive insignia on there, on their berets. And he snatched the beret off one of the sergeants and held it up and said, this, blah, blah, blah. No, he's pointing out our unit insignia. He said a bunch of curse words at the time. He said, this unit in Sydney will see combat again because he fought in Desert Storm as a Bradley platoon leader, a taker, but he was a Bradley platoon leader at the time. He said, we will see combat again. So that was the beginning of my ramp up. And from then on, only thing we did, everything we did was how do we fight our vehicles? How do we fight as an individual? How do we fight as a crew? How do we fight as a team? My ramp up started in November, 2002 for the invasion. And I'm thankful for that because it got me in the mindset. It got me in the life of a combat soldier, understanding everything, trying to understand everything that I would be asked to do.
1: Can you talk me through what it's like to be not only a tank commander in charge of a four man crew? which has a coaxial machine gun, a 120 millimeter main gun, a 50 caliber, and a, a loader's 240, all at your accidents, plus three other tanks and maintaining control of that tank, that platoon and maintaining contact with your company. What was that like to manage and execute? So initial management of it.
0: So. You're a platoon leader. You know, you had to monitor two radio nets, company and platoon, and then you had your internal. So what initially, what it felt like was, there's no way in hell anyone can do this. To have all these people screaming in your ear at the same time, whether it's in combat or in training or just doing stand to in the morning, you know, it's no way. It, so it felt overwhelming initially. But that's where I learned to do the thing that I tell other people, which is the key to managing a decentralized organization, like our army is. We're decentralized. And I say, you have to be two things. You have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And you have to learn to let go. If you're not used to being uncomfortable, then it's going to hurt. But the most important lesson was, if you don't learn how to let go, i.e. trust other people to execute per your intent, like they're not going to do it your way. They're going to do it their way, but they're going to do it the way you want it. And it initially, it felt chaotic. It felt like there was no way in the world I was going to succeed in it. It felt like I was going to get someone killed because I was going to miss some bit of information. But as soon as I grabbed hold of those two things you know, learning how to trust other people and learning how, you know, I don't have to have control of everything. You know, the loader's going to do his thing. The gunner's going to do his thing. The driver's going to make his adjustments. It got easy. It, It just felt natural. It got easy. I knew the gunner was scanning for targets. I knew the driver was looking for mines. I knew the loader was looking at our flanks and looking at the other platoon members to make sure that we were still in formation. And I learned how to trust. And that You know, I mentioned earlier about Mission Command, and that's one of the tenets of Mission Command of the six that you have. That's one of them, and I think that's one of the most important. So, yeah, I mean, those two things helped me overcome
1: the apprehension and the fear. When you crossed over the berm on March 19th and transitioned from Kuwait into Iraq, what was that sprint to Baghdad like? It was more like
0: a marathon so we thought as soon as we crossed that border, because the dozers were like knocking the mines up. We knew on like March 6th, 17th or 18th, we were growing up because the bulldozers started clearing the minefield. They started making lanes for passage. And when, we first, when I first crossed the border, I was thinking, man, it's going to be a Republican Guard division on the other side. Within five minutes, we're going to be engaged in tank warfare. We drove all freaking night didn't see squat (laughs) so it wasn't really a sprint it was like a marathon and by the time we saw anything it was burnt out hoax from the first gulf war and by the time we saw combat we were zombies man we were done my ankles swollen inside my tanker boots because i stand i stood up for so long and It was initially exciting. We were like high-fiving and yelling on the platoon net. And by noon the next day, we were like, yo, war is boring. This
1: sucks. I was a leader of that platoon. And you're going through these swings of boredom and chaos. Expecting contact, not having contact. What was that like to, as an individual and also a leader of that group? So combat is...
0: I mean, that's what we trained for. We train for the action part. You know, we train for the actions on the objective. We train for, you know, how to do a breach and all the other cool stuff. But no one ever sits around and say, all right, we're just going to sit here for four hours and learn how to deal with all the thoughts in our head about what could happen, what will happen. And you you can't train for the inaction of combat, you know. And you've experienced it. Combat is usually five hours of sitting around doing nothing and five minutes of intense action and five more hours of sitting around doing nothing. And then maybe another two minutes of action. So learning how to keep 15 other guys in my platoon when I was a platoon leader, keeping their heads in the game, you know, you would say things on the radio, you would point out like terrain features and shift you know fields of fire and have people do stuff while you're in combat and then somebody will see something and everybody will point to him like no we all can't look at it we all can't get fixated on the target so it was just dealing with the boredom part was the, probably the hardest thing because when you're a combat, I, I would only imagine that when it's your time to go it's your time to go and either you don't feel anything at all or you feel a bunch of stuff all at once and then you feel nothing. I don't know. But yeah, that's how we dealt with it. That's, I really trained not train for it. But the boring part because I had no idea. I'd never been through it before.
1: What were those short moments of combat like?
0: Well, I would say they're intense. And I would say that we trained so much about Action, you know, actions on the objective, actions in contact, you know, and we and all of our gunnery skills were muscle memory that when we saw a target, we called it out like we were on the range, calling out the fire command, and eventually we truncated it, we shortened it down to what was needed. But those intense minutes of combat, and I think that's where our military succeeds the most because we make intense actions like that almost mechanical to where the brain knows nothing else to do but to do what it has trained to do. And so it's like pushing a button to get your coffee out of a current, you e. know, machine. That's all that machine knows how to do. And then when it's over you, it's like, well, damn, that was quick. Uh, <laughs> so, so combat, it seemed was easier than training because there was no actor actually being of, oh, hey, you suck. Your grid was 10 meters off the target. You know, your round fell two feet short. You know, you know fire suppression is always good as fire de- destruction. And so if that dude was scared enough to put his head down, hey, that's good enough to have him stop shooting at me and somebody else can get engaged. That was,
1: it was easier than training. Talk me through the approach to Baghdad and then the transition when Baghdad fell. Well, the
0: initial approach the first couple of days was born because you're driving from the Kuwaiti, the northern Kuwait border, through the open desert. And the most, the most happening thing that, that goes on is getting fuel and getting food. And then, (laughs) because you're like, because you put in your grid and land nav in the desert is very easy, even without a plugger or a GPS. I mean, you point at you. You find your asthma and you're like, all right, there's a terrain feature out there that sticks out of the desert. And you go toward that and you say, I need to stay two or three degrees left or right of that. That's easy. So you do that for the first couple of days. And then as you get closer to the populated areas, to the built up areas, to the areas that support more than just the Bedouin in the desert and camels and those freaking huge lizards, you, know, you start getting to people land and you start focusing a little bit more, you start seeing people, you know, like, Hey, I see people, but they're not shooting at me. They're just regular people. And you get closer and closer to the enemy and you start seeing the destruction, the air force has dealt them or the Apaches have dealt them in previous. And you're like, damn, how long has that been there? And then you finally get to like an outer defensive belt or something. And the way our military trained and the way I was trained, this rules of combat, we saw the enemy before they saw us. So we always engaged before they saw us. You know, we always engage with the smallest element possible. So we'll engage with a tank platoon. And then if there was maneuver room or if there was necessary to maneuver, we would maneuver the rest of the company or something around the enemy or to the flanks of the enemy and bound to them and destroy them. But it's usually by the time we got close enough to see if their eyeballs are on the sand and their legs are everywhere else, it didn't matter anymore because the American army was that good in the open desert. So the approach until we got into the cities, now the cities was a different thing. That was, I started going back to Vietnam, World War II type, you know, lessons I learned at West Point and other, you know, personal learnings. Like when you fight in the city, I mean, I... A tank platoon leader is trained to engage armored targets or other targets at great distance, at standoff range, right? When I got into the city, my normal configuration for my tank and for my platoons were the tank commanders in the hatch. He's not an open protector. He's open. He is belly button deflated with his rifle on the left-hand side or the right-hand side, whatever side. And a four or five hand grenades with the safety clip pulled off up there. The loader is up there, where the machine guns are both armed and ready to rock and roll. And the people who are outside of the hatch, outside of the turret, are looking up at the second and third floors because tank guns cannot super elevate to engage stuff, you know, ten feet up, twenty feet up, when it's uh, a building that's next to your tank. And so I'm in 70 tons of death and destruction and it is absolutely useless unless I run into the building with the tank in the city, because I'm engaging targets with my rifle. I remember one engagement, a technical truck got so close to us, the turret couldn't traverse fast enough. And I engaged with my M4 and that was the engagement, engaged with the M4. Yeah. I learned a lot there, Matt.
1: When you got into the city. And into Baghdad, did it feel like it was over? where the it felt like the majority of the Iraqi military kind of melted away? there was never that there was never that,
0: I don't know what you want to call it that that big battle, you know, you'd hear about the seventy third Easting. You hear about you know Stalingrad or Kursk in the past. You hear about Ted Fitzov, you know those big battles, the Idrink Valley. You hear about Gettysburg, you know, those pivotal battles that changed the course of the war. It seemed like it was an ongoing, like, like, ongoing fight where we would engage whatever size element platoon, company, or battalion, or even brigade level, but you'd never engage all of it at once. you right, we were known for penetrating the lines and going through, and then the follow on elements would spread out. It's usually the infantry guys that spread out and, and did all the nasty, dirty work as we kept going. It was never that pivotal battle. And even when we got to Baghdad, the last major battle we had, which was like 24 or 30 hours long, they kept sending technical trucks at us and we were so good at and it sounds morbid, but we were so proficient at killing that we knew where to hit the vehicle to make the vehicle tip over, turn over, and knock all the people out. And then once that happened, whoever was sensing the target knew what to do after the people were no longer behind their steel plate or in their vehicle. We, we were just so proficient at it. It just didn't seem like it was a pivotal battle. And then when, I guess, when they finally quit or surrendered or whatever the CIA did to them. They, and they told us we're going to transition to full-spectrum operations, which included you know, going out and doing things with the civilian population. Like my role when we first got into Baghdad in the Nun. And guess who was the only guy in the battalion that knew how to speak Arabic? That was this guy. <laughs> it was like night and day transition to, hey, I'm going to kill you, to, hey, I'm going to help you clean up your neighborhood. It took a lot of mental agility of a twenty, whatever, twenty-five or twenty-six-year-old, out as I was at the time, to jump from kill to, hey, I'm going to help you clean up your backyard now. Did
1: you struggle with that? Did I struggle with it? Yeah, that, that really that because... transition of mindset, did you, of being wary, being conscious, being actively searching for threats, and then now you're also engaging people and trying to fix the problems of the civilian populace that the military either melted into or was tacitly supported by. So that's another thing
0: that's good about the U.S. military. So rules of engagement, laws of land warfare. We studied the heck out of those. I mean, we studied that. We knew that it was not okay to kill grandma, but it was okay to go. Grandpa He's shooting at you, you know, things like that. You know, it, it, it was just in our mind that when we started helping people do things, when we started doing patrol and all the people start coming out again onto the streets and the markets were opening again, that we knew how to identify the ones who were shooting at us. It was, at that point in time, it was usually the guys that wore boots. Even if they had a you know, traditional garb on, but we would see their feet and they had military boots on, we knew we had to watch them. Or if they were watching us with a cell phone, we knew we had to watch them. But like kids walking around, us doing patrols and throwing candy and MREs at the kids on the street. Because of our humanity as a force and because of our training to not engage just indiscriminately people, you in know, I guess we would call it a host nation. I mean, my opportunity, my, I would say my battalion just have the issue of they're all enemies. I got to kill them all. And that just took, that was our values. I collective the values as an army and, and, as an American, but it was our training of knowing what's a hostile target. When do I engage? When do I call up? When do I take hostile force action? You know, stuff like that. So the transition, I would say it felt uncomfortable for the first six or 12 hours. Because you're still hopped up on, like, there's a tank trying to kill me. You know, I still have dreams of a one Sabbath rail, and they make a distinctive sound when they go past your head. I still have dreams about that crack, that supersonic crack going past you and trying to find out where it is. But they weren't, you know,
1: the kids weren't shooting RPGs at me, so there was no reason to engage. What was the remainder of that that first deployment like for you? Frustrating. I was going to say, it had to have been, it had to be frustra- frustrating.
0: And I'll probably get in trouble with this, if, but it's an opinion that I think is correct. And I won't get in trouble, but I think some people look at it and like, he don't know what he's talking about. But we were all of the opinion that we toppled the governing regime of Iraq. And it didn't take long to understand the culture of the people there. And so essentially we created a huge power vacuum. I mean, it was a huge power vacuum, a huge governing vacuum that we created. And so the people in my circle and the battalion on down, we thought we need to rehire the Iraqi army to do the things that they've been trained to do But to now do it for their country and not go keep, you know, keep seeking to destroy them and enable them useless. We need to rehire those, those people who did the, like I did sanitation. So we rehired the sanitation workers to help get them back working, get them back to a sense of normalcy. But that wasn't a policy at the time of the powers to be. We still went out and went for, looking for weapons cash uh, to protect ourselves. But it was frustrating because we all saw it from the platoon leaders to even the privates. They're like, there's no one here in charge. And they're all looking at us to be in charge. Um, we're not politicians, we're soldiers. So it was frustrating to see that we lost an opportunity to gain. And I always say that this is similar to the U.S. and Reconstruction in the Civil War, that we lost an opportunity to gain momentum. We stalled or went backwards. And that's probably how the insurgency got born. Somebody with power, influence came in and said, I hate Americans, so let's go for it. And they went for it, and we were there for a team number of years trying to fight off, you know, small groups of insurgents.
1: It was frustrating. Talk me through the redeployment. And then what was it like knowing that you'd go back? That's a good question. So our
0: redeployment after that first, I guess, try, it was, so following redeployments, I'll start there. Following redeployments gave people a decompression time in either the airport of Baghdad or at the border or in Doha. We did not get a decompression time. We, once we ripped Toa with the guys that took over for us, we spent very little time training them on the things we learned the hard way. We got, we got the hell out of Dodge, basically. I mean, we were gone. We were back in the United States, like, shoot, less than a month. I mean, the third deployment I went on, Our decompression time was like a month or a little bit longer. And so we'd redeployed, and I guess the Army hadn't figured out or lost the understanding that troops in contact have memories. Troops in contact are not ready to, not everyone is ready to integrate with society again, their families again, rules again, even driving on the road again. So our redeployment was quick. It was hasty and the guys that took over for us, I mean, they didn't even know how to put their body armor on. They're just like, oh, I'm here. I guess I'll just walk around and, and do nothing. The war's over, but it wasn't over for the, the insurgents. So a lot of my soldiers got home and we had a lot of domestic issues. We had a lot of individual issues. We had a lot of people issues. We had a lot of just general issues. Once we got home. So that redeployment, I think, was a disservice to the people who served. They basically wanted to get us home and let us decompress in our living room, which don't work. It does not work. You now, they learned that the hard way.
1: When did you find out
0: that 3rd, 3rd Brigade, 3rd ID, was getting asked to go back? Yeah. <laughs> well, we got a new brigade commander, so he didn't... <laughs> This guy, I would say, like, two months after we returned to Fort Benning. It's not Fort Benning now. I forget the name of it, the new name. But as soon as we got back to Columbus, Georgia, we got a new brigade commander, and he didn't deploy with us. As far as I know, he didn't deploy with anyone at the time. And so he was itching and ready to go prove his, his, I don't know, his know-how of being a brigade commander in combat. And one of the first briefings he gave us as a brigade was that we're going to do all this train up to go back to Iraq. And that's when I learned that that's when I learned a couple months later that we were going back. I didn't think I was going back. I thought I did my duty. The army was big enough to. Get peacekeepers over there. We engaged National Guard, engaged reserves. We had other countries there at the time. So I'm thinking to myself, this was a one and done. You know, I'm not going back to Iraq. And lo and behold, I was wrong. So we did our train up and then we got redeployed. I think it was right after Christmas in 2004. It was maybe the next month and back in 2000, after New Year's in 2005. And when I finally got to our FOB, and was to relieve the guys who were there. I looked at my equivalent, which was another battalion maintenance officer. And I looked at him and said, I can't freaking believe I'm back here again. And they just start laughing at me because they thought this is a what I've done for them. They're never coming back. Yeah. So I learned two months after I got redeployed, I was going back. And even when I got back there, I didn't believe I was back. I was like, no way in hell. What the hell am I supposed
1: to do? There's no one to kill. What did that experience that second deployment as a battalion maintenance officer? What was that like in comparison to the first one? The first one, and uh, you may appreciate this, the first one was
0: a weapons-free environment. If it's in front of you and you can't positively identify it as friend, it was weapons-free. There was no asking permission to... Hey, I see a guy with an RPG walking around. Can I engage? It's like, hell yeah, you can engage. That that second time in Iraq for combat duty for I guess I don't know what you want to call it, wasn't damn sure wasn't peacekeeping. Yeah, stability. It, shoot, wasn't stability either because their government was so corrupt, it was ridiculous. I don't know how they survived. Just <laughs> the second time. It was, I think it was more stressful because you had all these eyes on you, watching you. I would have to, as a battalion maintenance officer, I would have to justify DXing a engine or a piece of equipment or Bradley or Tanker or something like that. I would have to justify doing that. And it's like, it's broke. They can't use it. Give me another one. And they're like, well... What do you mean it's broke? It's like he ran over a freaking IED and it cracked the hole. It's broke. Well, can you put it on the gate? No, it's broke. Give me another one. It was not the same. It was more eyes looking at you. There was more, there were more bean counters in a decision-making. There were more politics in the decision-making. There was more of everything that people get pissed off in our country about is something As raw and as pure as combat operations, making it more difficult for us to do our job. If They wanted me to keep the peace there. Okay, I know how to keep the peace. Keep these people from killing each other. I know how to do that. But if I have to do it with all these stipulations of when to do it, how to do it, where to do it, who to talk to, when to talk to them, how much to pay them, who to kill, who to not kill, when to fire, when to not fire. That was something the american soldier is not built for that's not us that's conventional forces that's not us maybe tier one assets yeah maybe paramilitary yes conventional us ground forces no so yeah it was it was a lot more stressful the second time
1: the first time for me it felt like the wild west like the guy would pull his gun, and you just got to make sure that you, when you return fire when he pulls that gun, that you shoot straight, that you shoot quick, and that that target is down. And so you're it's that was basically it. you're walking you're walking through the OK corral a hundred times, and then here pops out this dude with a gun, bang! <laughs> All right, and then you keep walking back and forth down the OK corral. And yeah, was and it? Then you get you go to O five O six and. It is like a chess match. And so you're putting all the pieces onto the board and you're trying to think three to five steps ahead to make sure that you don't lose. Not only like you don't want to get checkmated, you don't want to get checked. You don't want to lose a punk. And so you're constantly, and it, you're, everyone in the chain of command was doing that. And so yeah. each move was extremely scrutinized because I don't want to lose a home v. Because we only have so many up armored home bees. I don't want to lose a tank because we only have so many tanks. And mm-hmm. the risk necessary to have success was very difficult. And you had to be very deliberate about communicating. Here is a deliberate risk we're taking to have a win. But in this situation, like those wins were small and they were fleeting. You, you, just like you said earlier, there was no Antietam. There was no Gettysburg. There was nothing that was going to break the back. And so everyone's afraid of making a mistake and you missed opportunities to, to have a huge success. Exactly. It was, yeah.
0: Let me ask you, let me ask you, I know I'm taking up all your time. So if, if you don't want me to ask it, I'll shut up (laughs) and just go over.
1: I'll edit it out.
0: You edited it out. <laughs> so do you know of the, I guess he's, what's his name? Van Saint, Chris Van Saint. And I think so. He was a Delta operator. And I would say one of the battles that, one of the battles that he was part of, they call it a battle. You can read about it. It was pretty short and small, but it was significant nonetheless. It was a battle in a small town in the, the opposition, I, I would call it an opposition, the opposition controlled part of Somalia. In which, you know, he called naval gunfire from one of the, you know, destroyers out in the sea and they fired their five-inch and all the other good stuff. But that whole battle was precipitated on his uh, his team's ability to take a little bit of information and act on it. And he didn't ask for permission to do it. He saw that this was an opportunity that if he asked, it, the opportunity would have uh, evaporated, would have been gone. And, you know, he his team, he and his team took it upon themselves to do the research on it, gather intelligence, gather resources, and gather, you know, gather friends, not friends, but allies to help battle this. And they were able to execute and they probably killed about, I don't know, 15, 20 terrorists in Somalia, but they were able to act on it. And the same thing with Iraq, you know, the first, After the invasion, you were able to act on things that you saw, it was trusted at that level that you could act on things that would be of the greater good. The second time, no. You had to ask permission. Hey, there's a guy laying an IED. Can I fire? No. Is he sure it's an IED? Or is he taking out the trash? It's a
1: bomb. Well, can you get a picture back to me? No. Yeah, I know exactly how you feel. To be fair, many of those situations we would not have changed the strategic scenario of Iraq with what looks like at the moment tactical win and we had yeah. those moments where we set ambushes for ied placers or we would kill them or we'd capture them we'd stop but it, it's it it's a, a blip in the radar that that person is off the battlefield that combatant is off the battlefield mm-hmm. and he's replaced the next day because he's low skill and he's easy to hire or manipulate and We had to be there to provide that security environment for the strategy to have success. And for someone, like you talked about, those tier one operators that behind the scenes were taking our information or at least taking the stability within the chaos that we were creating to target and to roll up the higher value targets. But without us there, the question is, would they have the the permissive environment to allow them to move and operate at a lower risk Zero, but a lower risk for them to operate without the, those military forces. there, And it, those are unknown unknowns. We'll never know. Yeah, that is true. And so it goes back to the strategic question. And like you said, it's like we only had two options. It's either pottery barn, we break it, we bought it, or we break it and we walk away and hope everything turns out okay and we don't get called back. But yeah. once we committed to break it, there was no <laughs> real good question, no good answer redeployment back to the United States and coming to the end of your military service obligation. What was that decision like for you to stay in or get out? The decision for me to,
0: and I chose to get out of active duty, leave active service after my five years obligation. It was more of a decision. It wasn't a decision based on, I'm scared to go back. I'm not willing to go back. I was more than willing. I wasn't, uh, fearful of it, I knew my training would come into play, and and, and hopefully would bring me back home. It wasn't it wasn't anything like that. It was the decision to leave active duty was a decision I made to to help strengthen my family at home. I was married at the time. I was young. I, I was married maybe uh, two years to another person in the in the same combat brigade actually as me. So. We, I was deployed someplace and she was at home or she was going someplace and I was at home. So it was being married on paper, I felt like, but it wasn't being married in the mind. It was like, hey, I'm going to leave here and I'm going to be gone for a month or I'm going to be gone for six months or a year. So I left active duty to help, as best I understood at the time, strengthen my own family because it Yes, that was my job, but it was not fair. And if I wanted a family of my own, I had to make a decision. To do what I love doing or be with the ones I loved. So after I got my back from deployment in 2006, my obligation to West Point, the five years, was up June 1st or 2nd. And that was my date to leave the military, or active duty at least
1: me through the decision to do the guard and then the reserves. So, as many people leaving
0: active duty and leaving that world, it was part of me. It was like my leg or my fingers, or my arm. I didn't wasn't really the, ready to give it up yet. So I figured, okay, National Guard guys, and this is twenty-something-year-old me. National Guard guys don't get deployed that often to fight overseas. And later I learned that was not the case. But anyway, and I wanted to stay in Georgia because that's where I lived at the time. My wife, at the time, she was going to leave, leave the brigade that we were in and, find, and get a, an active job at, in Atlanta proper. So I figured, hey, I can leave active duty and go get a regular job and we can like, start building our life together. So that's when I joined the, the National Guard, Georgia Army National Guard. And and I wanted that affiliation. I wanted to be around soldiers and people like that again. But I wanted some time to to be at home, just like anyone else. So when I got there, before I signed up, it was a heavy brigade. When I got there, they transitioned to a light brigade. Well, that sucked because now instead of a tanker, I'm a fire support officer, and, and liaison officer. And then I found that they volunteered for a duty in Afghanistan, and. From my experience in Iraq and combat, these guys were, it was like sending a baby with a milk bottle to Afghanistan. They had that. They knew not what they were getting into, but they volunteered to do it. You know, then I said, okay, to hell with this. My wife and I talked and we're like, all right, let's move to Virginia, to DC area. And so, okay. After two years of the guard, I left the guard and I found a job with C.B. Richard Ellis, and I I landed a job in Richmond, Virginia, and that's how I transitioned to the reserves and to civilian engineering life, was through that whole mess. I know I left out a lot of particular details, but those details are just long-winded to some degree, and I'm not sure if you have enough uh, tape recording to get all that long-windedness.
1: As you progressed in the reserves and then civilian world, what was that experience like? Both being an engineer in the civilian world, but also doing the activities that you were doing in the reserve. Dude, the reserves
0: by far is the hardest way to serve your country in the military. I don't care what anyone said. When I was on active duty, I called reservists freaking pogs and all other nasty, lazy names. And I was like, these guys are stupid. They don't know what they're doing. When I was in the National Guard, you know, I found out these guys are, they're like militia. You know, yeah, they're trained, they have all these high tech weapons, but these dudes can pick a job and stay there for like 300 years if they want, if they live that long. But the reserves, balancing a demanding civilian career, and if you have a family, you know, meeting those needs of your family and then meeting the needs of the Army Reserve, which thinks sometimes they're full time and you work unpaid for like weeks or months at a time. And everything takes time and you have to do everything. You can't just say, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to check my reserve email. I'm not going to answer that thing because other missions are requiring it. Reserves is hard. I mean, it is, I can understand why people don't volunteer for battalion command or company command because it will just suck every little bit of extra time you have. It is hard. It is hard. That's all I can say
1: kept you going in the reserves
0: so the army reserve you have so the type of person that joins the army reserve is someone that says i know i don't have any time to do anything extra other than my job and my family but i think serving the country is important enough so that person that is in the reserves army reserve as a um, m-day or or troop program unit or temporary soldier not full-time that person, one, has that key desire that we are looking for in a volunteer force. But the bad thing about the Army Reserve, no one tells them, no one told me at least, how do you progress? What? How do you progress in the reserve? How do you do more? How do you mentor someone from 100,000 miles away? How do you lead someone through influence instead of direct leadership? No, no one ever and I figured all I didn't figure it all out but I figured some of it out the hard way and the joy for me in the reserves is that I'm a battalion commander now and the joy for me is being able to talk to someone about how they can progress in both their civilian career and to progress in the military I've helped guys on the civilian side get jobs written letters of recommendations for schools I've sent a guy to West Point as a, you know, class of 2026. Yeah, he's 2026. I've helped guys, you know, get new jobs in the reserves. I've mentored people how to go to school and get their masters and why it's important and go to army schools and why it's important and how to time those things so that their family doesn't think that they're active duty again. I just love how I'm able to influence other people to make the best life for themselves to be the best that they can be you know be all you can be well i'm gonna help you i'm gonna teach you how to do this stuff if you listen to me that's great if
1: you don't that's great i hope you learn something as, as we near the end of the interview mm-hmm. what is the theme that you see from whether it's high school to west point to your military service on active duty to what you see now in the reserves and your civilian job Well, I know we were talking earlier and there are two
0: things that have driven me, but if you look at all that time encompassing, I would say it's three things. The first one, the first two is what you already heard. I don't know how to quit. I know how to fail. That's, I've proven that many a times. I have paperwork that shows I know how to fail, but I don't know how to quit. And that's an important thing for me. So those two things right there and learning from those failures. If I don't learn from those Lestellius what I need to do next time, then, you know, life sucks. I think every man should be married twice. If you're married more than twice, then, dude, there's something wrong with you. And the next thing is, you know, I just... It's important for a person to have purpose in life. And the more purpose you can find with your life, the more rewarding it'll be. And And I do have one great fear. I don't want to be laying on my deathbed thinking I haven't done crap with my life. You know, I would at least say, well, I was able to do X, Y, and Z. I couldn't do C and, you know, I couldn't do X, A, B, and C, but I did X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what kind of drives me for this. And I mean, I have enough time to retire now, but the military is just that place where the reward is not, how far you go is how hard, it's how far you drag everyone else with you and that's what i like i love that part
1: yeah. i mean then you what well, we were talking earlier you kept saying to my kids and you were talking about your soul and you were talking mm-hmm. about your subordinates you were talking about your peers you were able to help out and it is so that feeling that you can create with your subordinates with your peers with your soldiers, Get gets so close to that, except for they have more of a say yeah. because your blood can't divorce you. Yeah. <laughs> they can't quit and they can't walk away. there will always be your blood, but to positively influence your soldiers, it's such a powerful thing that you can do it right. Yeah. So as we ramp up, do you have any final comments to the class?
0: Man, I sucked up enough of your time. This is supposed to last an hour and a half. I've taken an hour and 45. If I haven't said it by now, it's not worth saying in two minutes, you know, but I really appreciate the opportunity to at least share some of the story of a little cog in a big machine. And I hope if anyone gains just one morsel
1: of anything from this whole conversation, it'll be worth it for me. Awesome. Again, a very unique story, very unique experience. I appreciate you sharing it, McKaylee. I
0: appreciate the opportunity. Till duty is done. Yes, sir. Till duty is done. Take care, Joe. You too.
1: Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder-owned company that specializes in handmade, one-of-a-kind American flags. I served with Andy spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking Flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand-stained, handcrafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one-of-a-kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder, or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order, and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift giving this year. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.